Um, I got a message here in the book of Romans. If you go to Romans chapter 2, and I was wondering how practical this was going to be for you this morning. I don't like just preaching something that at the end of it, there's nothing you can do with it, you know, other than just, oh, I'm just attaching this to my knowledge base. Uh, I, think, I think there is something here that I can bring out in a practical way, but there is some things that I need to lay out as a foundation uh, in relation to the Jewish people at the time, especially when Christ was crucified and, and how their religion worked. And, uh, and I think that reveals a lot that happens in our own hearts and in our own religion as such. And so I think this is going to, we, we can parallel that a bit in our personal lives as we go through this. But this is basically a message I called God's Argument Against the Jew. Now we know we've been looking at the courtroom of God. Chapter 1, we've learned that righteousness must be given from God to man. You can't stir that up down here. There's nothing right that you can do down here that you can bring to God. Say, God, accept me based upon my right. You know, he says, no, there is no right. Uh, basically, if righteousness is going to come into your life, it has to come from heaven down. Yeah. And the Bible says, therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. It's got to be revealed through the gospel. That means if you're not born again, you can never be right. You can pretend you're right, but you're not right. Amen. And so you've got to be born again. And if you've got Christ in your heart, that doorway has opened to heaven where his righteousness positionally has already been applied to you. So when the Father looks at you, he sees you perfect like his son. He doesn't see you as just someone that, oh, you used to sin and now you're doing pretty good. No, he sees you as someone that has never sinned when he looks at you. That's the record you carry as a child of God. That's why there's no death for you. It's been defeated because you carry the record of the perfect and sinless Son of God as your record. And he took your record upon himself and that's why he had to die. See, because your record required death. Uh, He got in the courtroom and said, oh, I see you got the record of all those sinners down there Well, there's only one penalty, death, and that's why Jesus died. He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Amen? That's how salvation comes. So the problem is after that sometimes, people try to mess with the gospel message. They'll try to, because it's too easy. (laughs) This is just too easy for me just simply to trust Christ and trust that he's going to bring his record into my life and pardon me from all of my crimes, all that death penalty that was waiting for me, that just seems too easy. So we're going to create a religion that will help God out a little bit. And then they start adding things to the gospel. Well, Paul addressed that in the book of Galatians where he said, though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached, he says, let him be accursed. That means if anybody adds to the gospel, if you want to know what that is, if you want to write this down, it's 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4. It gives you a very definitive definition of what the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is. It's how that he died, he was buried, and then on the third day he rose from the grave according to the scriptures. Amen? And so that is the gospel. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1, for I'm not ashamed... Uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So that means that the Jews don't have a separate gospel. They have the same gospel that you have. 
they, they understand it differently because they were waiting for a Messiah. And so they had a lot of mentality in their mind already that they're looking forward to this Messiah that was going to set up this kingdom. For us down here as Gentiles, usually we're not thinking that way. We're not thinking of a Messiah. We're just thinking of, man, my life is being destroyed. <laughs> you know, Sin is destroying me. And the Bible tells me that this Jesus Christ, who is God, has come down from heaven and took upon himself the form of man so that he could pay a penalty of death on my behalf. And so that Savior, that Son of God, paid for my sin on the cross of Calvary. Then it seems like after that, we begin to learn that this Savior has been the long-awaited Messiah that the Jews have been talking about since the beginning in Genesis chapter 12, where all the families of the earth shall be blessed through your seed, Abraham. And this was the seed, Jesus Christ. And so we learn about that later on. So the Jews have had a lot of time to process all of this. They have a lot of time to build religion. <laughs> Many of us haven't had that much time. <clears throat> Usually we fall into it. We, we jump, oh, this is a church. They have the word church there. <laughs> and also we find out, whoa, that's different, <laughs> you know, or that doctrine isn't exactly what it ought to be. But the Jews have had centuries, thousands of years of the law where they've developed these things. And then what happened is during the intertestamental period, that's between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was a period of about 400 years after the time of Nehemiah. They finished the walls. They finished that. Uh, they they kind of got society rolling in a normal way again, somewhat. But then also God just stopped talking. 400 years go by. And now, also John the Baptist is, gets born. And the Bible makes this proclamation that this one is going to prepare the way for the Lord. And so this is already where the Jews had a problem. You know, they, who is this guy? I and mean, they were a little scared of him because he seemed very authoritative. But when they came to him, he would say, uh, he would tell them, bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. In other words, he was baptizing in the wilderness and he was wanting people to show that they actually believed his message. And then I would baptize you. Now that's a Jewish baptism at the beginning to the, before Christ came on the scene and started the church. The baptism today is the same thing, but we kind of look at it from the other side. So the Jews, notice this in Romans chapter 2, verse 17. God's making this proclamation. He's making this argument against these long-awaited, uh, this group of people that have been waiting for this Messiah. Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, and art confident that thou art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an, instruction of the, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge of the truth in the law. And so there we see, I want you to see one thing right off the bat here. Thou art called a Jew. Now ask yourself, where did this name Jew come from? Now, by the way, I'm not anti-Semitic here. That's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> I am for God's people, Israel. But God's got an issue with their religion here. And the religion that they are showing us here actually coincides very much with our religious attitude. And God's wanting us to learn something here. The word Jew comes from the word Judah. 
Now you remember way back, it used to be 12 tribes. They had land, 12 tribes. But because of Solomon's sin, God said he was going to divide those tribes. And what happened is 10 of them broke off the northern tribes from the southern two tribes with his Judah and Benjamin. So the Judah and Benjamin tribe, they're the one that retained the monarchy. They're the one that, that David and Rehoboam and uh, the, the kings after that, that's the one who ruled Judah and Benjamin. And the, the kings of the north, they were all basically heathen. They never served God. They didn't care about the things of God. And God brought them into judgment and, it, and, wrote, and stirred up Assyria to the north to come and take them captive. And that's why a lot of people talk about the 10 missing tribes of Israel. Amen. They're not missing, by the way. You see. And so the two were left. Now, after that time, they begin to identify a little bit differently, where now they'd say, now we're not just Israelites, because even the 10 tribes could identify as Israelites, but they narrowed that down a little bit further and said, we're Jews. We're after Judah. Now, that's interesting because the word Judah means praise. Praise. Now, the Bible tells us this. When Jacob, who was... Uh, whose name was changed to Israel, who was the father of these 12 tribes, he blessed his 12 sons. And this is the blessing he put upon Judah. He says, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up he stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. See, Judah's making a prophecy here that through his son Judah, now Judah was the fourth son of Jacob, there was Simeon, Levi, a uh, missing one. Um, Simeon, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and then Judah. Well, you say, well, why wouldn't Reuben, the oldest son, get the blessing like that? Why is Judah the one that's getting the scepter that's never going to depart, you know, and the lawgiver and so forth? Well, that's because when it came down to Joseph back in Genesis, when the, 12, the, the brothers... Uh, uh, sold Joseph into slavery, and he became the second of com in command of Egypt. What happened is Joseph set up a scenario where he was going to take the youngest brother because they didn't know who Joseph was. And he was wanting to see what his brothers would do. If I'm going to take your youngest brother and let you go, because that's what they did to him. He was wondering whether they'd be repentant or not, you see. So he set up this scenario. So he sets it up, or the, 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 the silver uh, cup is in the, is in the bag of, of Benjamin, and they go and chase after him. They look through the bags, ah, you stole. They bring him all the way back again, and Joseph says, what's this you've done? <laughs> he set them up bad. And they says, well, I'm going to take Benjamin, the youngest. Now, he was also the, the son of Rachel, which was the favorite wife of Jacob. And Joseph was the other son. So that he was going to lose both of his sons from the wife that he worked 14 years for. 
But before he allowed Benjamin to go, one of the brothers called Judah had said to his dad, Dad, we got to take Benjamin. He said we got to bring him with. And I'll tell you what, if, if anything's going to happen, it'll be on me. It'll be on me. Now that was a pretty good start there. And then as this happened and the scenario played out and Benjamin was going to be taken, who stood up? Judah. He'd made this promise to his father. And he stood up on behalf of Benjamin. And he says, you know what, don't take Benjamin. This would kill my dad. Take me instead. That's what Judah did. You see, so when, when God was choosing from those 12 sons, who was going to bear the seed that was going to come through and become the Messiah? <laughs> the one that was going to stand up for the people and say, hey, I'll take their sin. Father, I'll take their sin. Judah was the one he chose. See, this is the, the heritage of the people of Israel. This is how it began. This is where the Messiah came from. This is where the covenant comes to light, where all the families of the earth shall be blessed through you. And that's exactly what took place as time went on. Uh, Joseph and Mary, they were both through that tribe of Judah. And Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. Amen. And he got his day where he stood up, just like his forefather Judah did. And he says, I'll take their sin for them. Amen. So this is what they had behind them. You that are called a Jew, you know, and look what they let it become. Look what the religion became. It was no longer me standing in the place of sinners and, and interceding on for them and helping them and giving my life for others. Now it became something where my religion is sucking the life out of others for myself. It's about me now, not about the Lord. Not about the good of others. And that's why God is saying, I've got an argument against you as a Jew. And this praise that was supposed to go to uh, the Messiah, the Shiloh that shall come, the Messiah, that praise, instead of giving it to the one that deserved it, they wanted it for themselves. They thought, we're Judah. We're the ones that need to be praised. And they lived their life in religion just simply to be praised by men. So basically, this is a message on hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. It's having an outward show of religion. And this can happen in us, in our churches today. We can come to church and put on the show. Just like the Pharisees, just like the Jews of that day. And not have a personal Walk with God in our heart. Not giving praise to the one that deserves it. Amen. So the first thing he throws at them, you call yourself a Jew. Praise. You call yourself praise. Because that's not right. And rest us in the law. We also know that the Bible talks about the Lion of Judah. It even says in that, in, in the prophecy about the lion that crouches down. In Revelation 5, 5, it says, One of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. That's Jesus Christ, the lion 
of the tribe of Judah. No longer just the lamb. Now he has characteristics of the lamb. He still carries the mark of a slain lamb. But now he's standing up as a lion. You see, that's changing. A lot of people think they're going to meet Jesus the lamb. They're not going to meet Jesus the lamb. You're going to meet Jesus the lion. That's a whole different story. He's not your long-haired Jesus. <laughs> He's not your Jesus that just you know, lets you step all over him. That day's gone. The mercy has been extended, and the day of that mercy will end. And that's why our message today is, now while we have this space of time, turn to Christ and respond to the mercy of God, because one day he will not just come as a lamb, he is going to come as a lion, the judge of the world. Amen. So I say, be saved today if you're not saved. So they were called Jews. They relied on the law. He says, and rest us in the law. That means that they, they leaned on, leaned on that law. That law was everything to them. And the law was good. We've learned about that. The law is just, but the law is incomplete without Christ. They relied on the law. The Bible says in John 1, 17, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So when they refused the Messiah, they said, no, we're not going to serve you. You're not our king. You're not our lion. (laughs) You're not the lion of Judah. God says to them, you call yourself a Jew. You've crucified the lion. You killed the one that was supposed to be your leader, your Messiah. You said, crucify him in the streets and watched him die and gloated over him. Not only that, but you mocked him while he was dying. And all they're doing is just leaning on the law. Leaning on the law. The the law came by Moses, but the Lord tells us grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, and you're missing that. And the Bible says, for by grace are ye saved. Not by law. And so they missed it. They boasted on God. And make us thy boast of God to vaunt or glory. And they prided that they had the real God and the real Bible. Do you pride yourself on that? I do. (laughs) I say, hey man, I got the real God. (laughs) Not only that, I have got the real Bible. Amen? But this better not be everything I'm leaning on. I better have a relationship with Christ. It's incomplete just having stands. It's incomplete just saying, hey, this is my God. They had the God for thousands of years and yet they came up empty because they rejected Christ. They believed they knew God's will and knowest his will. They knew what he wished or determined. They thought they knew. They even knew that the Messiah would come and come with healing. They knew that whoever the Messiah was was going to come healing people. You think, duh? They saw him heal. Isn't it amazing how the devil can mess with your head where you can see something happen and somehow convince yourself it didn't happen? You know, the first person to ever get healed of leprosy other than Naaman in the Bible happened when Jesus said, be thou clean? Leviticus was written in that passage not for anything else throughout the whole Old Testament, just for that day that Jesus would come and heal that leper? And he said, hey, I tell you what, you go to the priest and you do what the law says. Because he wanted them to know 
that, hey, that passage you've been memorizing all these years that you've never even known why it was there because you've never seen the healing before? Guess what? The Messiah has come. They knew that. And they rejected him. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> They've got a list. These are the things that the Messiah will do when he comes. <laughs> and Jesus fulfilled every one of them. And they killed him. Wow. They believed they proved excellent things. He says, and approve is the things that are more excellent being instructed out of the law. I mean, they have the law, and the law gives a lot of instruction about things that are more excellent. It says, uh, to examine, so they discerned, and the excellent means to be of more value. But then I thought of First uh, Philippians chapter 1, it says, and this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in the knowledge and all judgment that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. I think they had a wrong view of what excellent was and what needed to be excellent. And then they had a wrong view of what it was that they needed to discern excellency. Because here in this passage it says that your love may abound yet more and more. And that's something they, they lacked. They lacked love for the people. Because they loved themselves too much. But they had the book in front of them. They had the law. So that's the Jews' privilege. They had all those things that they knew that God has given them. Then there's also the Jews' presumption. Notice what he says next. It says, uh, I'll have to turn there. In verse 19, and art, and art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness. And art confident. They had confidence. They were persuaded that they were the ones to teach other people. Is that our heart? I know for myself, I want to be a teacher of people. I don't walk around and say, well, I'll wait for somebody else to do it because I don't know if I can do that. No, I stand up and say, guess what? I'm called to preach and to teach and I'm going to preach the word of God so people can understand what the Bible says. Yeah. And everyone here should have the same heart if you're a believer. You want to become a teacher. The Apostle Paul said that. He says, at the time you need to be teachers, you have, need to be taught again <laughs> because you've been carnal. Amen? Yeah. So every Christian is supposed to become a teacher. The Jews were confident that they were the guide of the blind. But what did Jesus say when he came on the scene? In Matthew 15, 14, he says, Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Yet they were confident that they were the ones that were supposed to teach. And yet what they were teaching was just bringing people into the ditch. <laughs> and they had the law. <laughs> they, and a light to them which are in darkness. And we know that Jesus Christ is a light in John 8, 12. It says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So I'm confident I'm the light to others in the darkness. But here comes Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the light of the world, and I kill him. The only light. He says, An instructor of the foolish. I'm going to move, move forward real quickly here. A teacher of babes. Then it goes on to say, which has the form of knowledge and of the truth 
in the law. Form, that's a key word. Appearance. You have the appearance of knowledge and the appearance of truth. But something is missing. Something is missing. So the Jews presumed something. It was a Jew's presumption. They had privilege and then they presumed that they were the ones that were supposed to teach. I'm a light to the blind. I'm these kind of things. And folks, we would agree with that and say, yes, you were supposed to be that. In fact, the Jews were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles in the world. But then why did they fail? Number three, we're going to look at the Jews' problems. Letter A, hypocrisy. They did not apply the truth they taught others to themselves. See, they took a lot of pleasure in telling everybody else what to do, but they never once took those same principles and applied them back to themselves. They didn't first judge their own heart before they condemned the people that they were teaching. It's hypocrisy. They were terribly insensitive in their own hearts to the truth that they themselves taught others. You know, it's easy to get that way as a Christian. For you too. That means you can read your Bible and you can look at other people and say, you know what, you shouldn't do that and you shouldn't do that. But uh, you know what, before you say that, you say, am I doing that? Am I doing that? It's what it says in Romans 2 verse 21. It says, and thou therefore which teachest another, teachest not thyself that thou preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? <laughs> These are all three things that the, the Jews of that day would be teaching because of the law, because they were relying on the law, but yet all these three things they were guilty of. Jesus nailed them to the wall many times. There were so many passages, there's more that I could read in one, one uh, Sunday morning. One of them is in Matthew 23 too. The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore, whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works. For they say and do not. So basically they're saying, don't steal. And so Jesus is saying, hey, if they tell you don't steal, then don't steal. But he said, don't do their works. That means don't follow their example of how they're applying that to their own life. They're telling you the truth of the law, but they themselves are not following tr through with it. He says, so you listen to what they say, but don't follow what they're doing. That's what Jesus is saying there. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all of their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries. If you go there today when we were in Israel at the praying wall, before you could go to the praying wall, you had to go into this little cart and they would get you a phylactery and a, and a head thing you had to wear before you could go to the wall and have a word of prayer. And so they would take these phylacteries, they'd bind them about because Deuteronomy says bind them about your head and your hand and so forth. So they're following all these, these religious rituals. And the Bible says that they broadened that. They made it that it looked like they were doing more religious things and looked more impressive to the people as they were doing these things. 
They loved the upper room, uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. <laughs> you don't call me a rabbi, I'll slap you. <laughs> they like that positionary talk. Folks, I've never had someone that called me by my first name. I've never corrected them and said, you better call me pastor. <laughs> That's your heart, how you handle that. You understand that? But it's not something we should demand. Never. But being not called rabbi, for one is your master, because the word rabbi means master or teacher, even Christ and all ye are brethren. That's why I try to, even in the church setting, to understand that, you know, the body of Christ is the local church, but then there's also the head. Now, who's the head? Christ. Christ. Good answer. Somebody who said, Pastor, no. <laughs> By the way, I don't want that. <laughs> so then where does that put me? I'm in the body. I'm with you. We're brethren. And what we do is we lift up Christ. He's our head. We listen to him. Now, the Lord may put me as an under-shepherd. And that's what our position is. We're really just someone to help relay the message of the shepherd down to the people. But I'm really just a part of the body. Amen? Maybe on the mouth. <laughs> Understand, we should all be a little bit of the ears, I think. <laughs> they make a big show of certain truths, but they themselves do not want... Uh, do, don't do what they are teaching others to do. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 23, 27, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. You see, this is the danger that we ourselves can be in as God's people. We can put on our suits on Sunday morning, and I say do that. You know, and today we say, well, no, we don't have to dress up at all for church, folks. I do it because you want to just glorify the Lord. Yeah. You want to do your best for him, amen? So I don't have a suit, then wear your best shirt. <laughs> I don't have a shirt. Well, then I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> amen. <laughs> don't come to church without a shirt, all right? Whatever you do, just use your best. Do your best. Why? Because Jesus deserves that. Yeah, Amen. That's what it's all about. But you know, don't just put on your suit and, and pretend that this is your Christianity. You've got to walk with God. You can come here and shake people's hand and smile and say, oh, how you doing, brother? I love you so much. You know, the Bible talks about unfeigned love of the brethren. Unfeigned love is unhypocritical. So you can say you love them, but the way, if you really love them, you're the one that's going to sacrifice for them. You see, so don't pretend. <laughs> but that's what the Pharisees were. Jesus said, full of dead men's bones. He listed three things. He talked about stealing. Yeah. Matthew 23, 25, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you may clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Yeah. Extortion, plunder. The definition of that is robbery. So these religious leaders were robbers. <laughs> Yet they would stand up in the synagogue and say, don't steal! Yet they never applied it to their own life. 
Now, maybe they didn't go and have plans where they'd go and break in someone's house and steal all their goods, but they would steal different ways. So we tell people not to steal. That means you don't cheat on your taxes. That means on the job, you don't take things from work that belong to the boss. That's stealing. No matter what it is. We can't say, thou shalt not steal, and then we're taking these liberties all over the place, and we're just kind of whitewashing it like somehow it doesn't matter because I've worked there long enough. Steal. That's what it is. You've stolen. Steal from your neighbor. Ah, we know each other. <laughs> yeah, well, don't steal from them. Don't take what belongs to them. Steal from your family. Well, a family always understands. You don't steal from your family. Yeah. Amen. So, well, it was just 50 cents. I had taught this to my kids the other day. One of them threw it out there. I thought, man, you're learning something. One of the boys was saying, well, it was just this much. He says, you're going to sell your integrity for that much? (laughs) You're learning, boys. (laughs) It's just 10 cents. So your integrity is only worth 10 cents. Well, how much is your integrity worth? I'd have more respect for someone who says a million dollars and 10 cents. Well, it's not that much. Well, then you sold it just for not that much. You shouldn't sell it for anything. Amen? Shoplifting, you wouldn't do that. Taking from the store. Or maybe, you know what happens is, they forget to charge you for something. Oh, well, it's their problem. <laughs> they didn't catch it. That poor employee probably has to pay for it out of their own pocket. You stole. You stole. You can't go and tell somebody not to steal, and you're doing stuff like that. How about passing tests? School or other tests? Stealing grades. Is that grade yours? Is that grade literally yours? Is that something you deserve because you worked for it? Or do you do something to steal it? Right? Then he brings up adultery, immorality. I could get into a lot with them, but they, they came up with all kinds of laws where they could divorce a woman for any reason whatsoever. That's why when they started talking to Jesus, they said, and the Pharisees came also unto him, tempting him and saying unto him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? (laughs) Every cause. (laughs) Because they would. If they wouldn't like their wife, divorce, get another one. And yet they'd be preaching, thou shalt not commit adultery. So Jesus goes into his long discourse explaining this is not the way it was from the beginning. And he just says, if that's what you do, you've committed adultery. Just nail them between the eyes. Guilty. Immorality. You ever harbored unclean thoughts? I'm not saying if they ever come into your mind. They obviously do because the devil always puts them in. But you've know, you got to learn to kick them out. <laughs> it doesn't become sin until you grab onto them and harbor them. Until that point you can say, Lord, take these thoughts away. That's not from you. You didn't give me that thought. And I don't want to think on these things. And he takes them away. You haven't sinned. The sin happens when you have that thought come into your mind and you actually hold on to the thought. You start meditating on that. Now you've sinned. So we're going to tell people not to commit adultery, but we think it's okay for us to sit there and daydream immorality. 
dress in immodest fashions that expose your body, causing other men to lust, and you're going to preach somebody else shouldn't commit adultery? Watch programs that promote nakedness and immorality, and we're going to go to somebody else and tell them not to commit adultery when we're involved with it every day? By the things we watch and see? Amen? <laughs> you can see how it gets pretty religious after a while. <laughs> see, this whole thing has to do with getting a little bit deeper than just the outside. See, the Pharisees were doing stuff like this. And then he mentioned sacrilege. To violate one's commitment to God or to rob God. Idol worship is associated with sacrilege. We talk about Hinduism. We talk about Buddhism. We talk about these terrible idols. And we say that's so wrong. Even how it's not right to pray to statues of Mary or any of the saints. And I'm against that. I believe that's sin as well. But if we say that we must also realize that our hearts must not commit sacrilege as well. It's about this here. In fact, the Jews, when they were, the Judah and Benjamin, when they were finally brought into captivity to Babylon, it was because of their idol worship. They were turning to other gods. So God brought them to Babylon. That's where their gods came from in the first place. And he says, you're going to spend 70 years there. And 70 years, when the 70 years was done, they went back to Israel. They were allowed to go back. And guess what? They no longer had any idols. From that day till today, they have never had an idol in Israel. But that didn't quite do it. (laughs) Because Ezekiel, who was a prophet during the time of that siege, says this, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart. And they put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired at all of them? Should I listen to them? So this idol that they used to worship outside, they've obliterated all the outside idols, but now they've moved that idol into their heart. They've hidden it. And this is what happens. Deuteronomy eleven sixteen: Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord that is my name and my glory will not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Thou art called a Jew, praise. (laughs) 1 John 5, 21 to the church, he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. So basically sacrilege is me reneging on the decision that I made to commit myself to God in some area of my life. Something stole my heart that took away that decision that I made for God. Now you ask me this, how many times have you you come to the front and made a decision at a a preaching service or maybe as you're reading your Bible and saying, hey, this is what I'm going to do. I'm making this commitment. And how many times have I backed out on that? So we're going to be preaching against the Hindu idols. We're going to be preaching against the, the idols here and the idols there. And yet we ourselves are committing sacrilege in our heart yeah. over and over and over and over again. We've made commitments to faith promise. That's your commitment, not mine. And we need to stick to it. Yeah. We need to give God what's his and stop robbing from him. That's committing sacrilege. 
So what took place here is in verse 23, it says, And thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God. So now the ones that were leaning on the law, boasting of God, I'm actually dishonoring him. Not only that, the Bible says I'm blaspheming him. Verse 24, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. Blasphemy means to speak reproachfully or revile God. You know, the scripture tells us in the New Testament that there's times where we allow the Lord to be blasphemed. We know what happened to David. The prophet came to him because you did this with Bathsheba and all these things took place. You give occasion to the enemy to blaspheme God. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 6, 1, let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. Wives and mothers, in, do, in Titus 2, verse 3, the aged women, likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home. That one's not very serious today. Good, obedient unto their own husbands. How about that one? That goes against the world that the word of God be not blasphemed. Well, I just think it doesn't matter. (laughs) You're talking about blasphemy here. You're talking about blasphemy. It's saying, aged ladies, (laughs) you keep yourself right so you can teach our younger women how to be right, how to be chaste and keepers at home, take care of their families, how to be obedient unto their husbands. How many times have you said, oh, you don't need to listen to him? Blasphemy. So that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Yet we stand up, we have our our Sunday school lessons, we're teaching everybody, we're teaching, we're teachers of of the fools, we're bringing everybody to maturity, yet we ourselves are blaspheming God in our own example to the world. Wow. (laughs) That one hurt, didn't it? (laughs) Also, young men, it says, in all things showing this of a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity. That those that speak against you may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say about you. Our lifestyle ought to be without reproach. Amen? Amen. I'll be done now. This last passage, <laughs> I appreciate that, David, but I don't think they all agree with you. <laughs> now, with just David here, I'd keep on going for half an hour. Amen. Romans 2.25 says, For circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law, but if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, the uncircumcision keep the, circ- the righteousness of the law, Shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? Because what is it about? Is it about the ritual or is it about the obedience? Yeah, amen. Shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who by letter and circumcision doth transgress the law? For he is not a Jew. Here we get down to the, the, the statement here. He is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. 
Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart and in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. It's amazing. He starts off, you call yourself a Jew, praise. The last verse is, that the praise may be of God. See, one of the problems of the Jews was an unclean heart. Sometimes those of us with unclean hearts, we stand up. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. But the Lord sees right in here. And our hearts are dirty. He knows that we've been thinking on filthy things. He knows what we took from our boss. He knows we're not following through on our commitments to the Lord. He knows all those things about us. Then let me ask you this. If he knows all those things and I'm still standing up here like this, why am I doing this? For your praise. Not for his. See, as a Christian today, you can come to church You can be here this morning and go through the whole thing and serve and help and all these things. But if your heart is not clean, the only reason you're doing it is so that people praise you. Just like the Pharisees. The Bible says they disfigured their faces when they they fasted. Oh, I'm without food. I'm I'm so religious. (laughs) Or their prayer. Long prayers where everybody heard them in the streets. But God never heard anything in the closet. He's saying, I'm still waiting to hear from you. (laughs) When you're done praying to those people, can you pray to me in the closet? Yeah. Amen. (laughs) We're doing it for others. To be praised. So it's amazing. Right at the beginning. Thou was called the Jew. Judah. Praise. Shiloh. Messiah. Glory to him. But you're doing it all for the praise of men. So folks, deal with this right here. Confess the sins of your heart every day. How long has it been since you confessed what's going on in here? Well, preacher, last month I took some time You know what you need to do every day? Every day. Before you go to bed, before you wake up, whatever, before you wake up, after you wake up. If you can do it before, that's great. (laughs) (laughs) Confess your sins in your heart to God. Stay faithful to decisions you've made for God. Don't commit sacrilege. You know, you don't have to make any decisions like Ananias and Sapphira. They didn't have to go sell you know, all their land and then give it to the church. But they wanted people to see them. I want to be treated like Barnabas. Everybody loves the guy because he's so generous. But in their heart, they couldn't give all the price. I, they robbed. They stole. They stole what was theirs. It's amazing, isn't it? And they died for it. Stay faithful to the decisions you've made for God. 
Do you remember a time where you've, you've, you've committed yourself to the Lord? We said, I'm going to start being more faithful to the house of God. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there is for every one of us. I'm going to be more faithful to tithing, to giving, to missions, to serving God. I'm going to be more faithful to encourage others. I'm going to be more faithful. And yet, what are we doing? I think it's time maybe to reevaluate some of the decisions that we've committed sacrilege with and get back to say, Lord, I'm going to just reset. <laughs> Clean my heart. Get back to the decisions I've made. Then make sure your religion... And I'm not against religion, but religion has to be an outflow of a right heart for God, not to impress people. Your relationship with God will be seen on your life. If you don't have a relationship with God, then your religion becomes just to impress people. Let your religion be an outflow of a right heart. Amen. Let's bow our heads. There were three things that were mentioned in this passage about the Jews and what they had problems with. But maybe as the Lord was speaking to your heart, you know there's something else in there. You know you're backsliding. You know you're not right with the Lord the way you used to be. You don't have the same joy. You don't don't have the same happiness, that sense of purpose that you used to have. And folks, you can only blame others so and so long. It comes down to you. You moved away from it. Can I encourage you to get back to the Lord and back to the plan of God for your life? To get right with the Lord. Can I encourage you to spend some time in saying, Lord, clean my heart. Create in me the right heart, Lord. Renew a right spirit within me. See, you've been frustrated, you've been getting more angry lately, more frustrated with life, and maybe your spirit's not been the same. That's a tell.